step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hello, and welcome back to Hat Radio. This is Avram Rosenzweig, and I'm delighted to have you here as my listeners. Um, and I'm equally as delighted to have with me a radio legend. <laughs> I like when you laugh, a friend. And someone who actually hired me and Marty at CFRB, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Steve Couch. How are you, Steve? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you. Um, yeah, you guys were the first hires I made. Were we? When I took over CFRB radio. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Gary Slate thought I was crazy. Well, yeah. I, I'm figuring that someone must have thought that was a hell of a risk. Yeah. And yeah. I said, Saturday night, we got to lighten this place up. Yeah let's try them and he said fine and you're the program director yeah, and you did and i did yeah yeah and uh it was a hoot we had a fabulous time but before we get into that because there's lots to talk about i want to tell uh my listeners that when i say that you're a radio legend I i'm not being uh dramatic this is not hyperbole steve ran two of canada's largest news talk radio stations in Montreal and in Toronto for many, many years. He was the national director of News Talk Radio Programming for Astral Media. He was a professor at two of Toronto's leading broadcast schools. And now he is the author of 99 Things You Wish You Knew Before Making It Big in Media. So we're talking about someone who has quite an auspicious resume. You've well, done a lot. Yeah, that's why the title is so long. It's a long yeah, one, isn't yeah, it? I, yeah. I cut it down to Making It Big in Media. And when I was a consultant, when I launched Couch Media, I used it as uh, Couch wrote the book on making it big in media. <laughs> right, right, right. Was, was, anyways, um, you know, I started when I was 17, straight out of high school. Office boy at the Montreal Star, sat on a wooden bench. 55 bucks a week. Yeah, 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 55 bucks a week. Made it up to 75 I thought I was rich, yeah. but um, I went to the Montreal Star and asked for a job. Well, there was a little classified thing looking for office boys, and I thought, I'm not going to be an office boy forever, so I want to be an editorial, and I want to be a reporter. And so when I went for my interview, I took charge of the interview, and I said, I want to be an office boy, I want to be an editorial. And I want to be a reporter. That was in the summer. By the fall, I was a cub reporter. Yeah, amazing story. I know. Amazing story. I know. You know what I loved about this story too, and you wrote a bit about this in your thank yous to your in your book. You thanked a lot of very auspicious people, one of whom uh, was your mother. <laughs> and you said, "My mom called up the uh, the editor." And she said, take my 17-year-old boy off the crime beat. He's too young to hang out with pimps. <laughs> I know. And, and I mean, I knew where everything was, right? And yeah. I'd be there with the morality squad. And 
I didn't know that she had called the editor until one day we were talking about parents or something, and it was Don Foley, a, a real legend in, in, in media. And he said, oh, I know your mom. I, went, <laughs> I know your you mom. Yeah. What do you mean you know my mom? Oh, yeah, I, I talked to your mom. I went, what? What did you talk about? Uh, it was a private conversation. So I go home that night and I say, Mom, did you talk to my editor? Yes, I did. Of course. Yeah. And I went, She's your mom. I said, why? Yeah. And then she told me what she told him. Yeah. And I went, well, that's what I do. She said, can't you put him in entertainment? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, no, that's what I do. Okay. And I'm not in any danger because I'm always around policemen. So yeah, no, you know? but I mean, the story's a phenomenal story because I think it was around 1968. Yes, you, it was. You, you were growing up in Montreal, Quebec, which was a nutty place, oh, right? it was insane. I mean, at some point, you talked about uh, going out during some riots and getting boinked on the head, right? Well, that was in 1969, it was like 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, the police went out on strike. And um, they, there, was, there was total anarchy, six bank robberies in the first few hours yeah. and Montreal was already the bank robber capital it was the murder of, capital of the world <laughs> yeah. I mean really it was an it was insane organized crime everybody was on the take um, that hasn't changed that much has it oh it's changed a lot okay well maybe different names but yeah. but it's it's not as bad good it's not as bad good but the uh, so anyway so I covered the riot at Murray Hill where the taxi drivers went and set the place on fire because they had the exclusive contract uh, to pick up passengers at the airport. Taxi drivers weren't allowed to do it. Um, and then there was a riot, and there was a, the, 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 the taxi drivers were shooting at the guards on the roof. The guards were shooting at the taxi like drivers. shooting bullets. Oh, yeah, 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 shooting bullets. I saw them, because I was there with them when they arrived. I saw them taking out rifles from the trunks of their cabs. Crazy. And uh, an off-duty... Uh, got killed, uh, right? Got an killed, undercover, yeah, cover. undercover yeah. cop got killed. And there was a phone... Uh, a payphone on the side on the wall of the of the garage because there's no mobile phones back then right and i hadn't always traveled with quarters so anyway so but one of one of our reporter was that i won't name but he he was on the phone and he he was like crying you got to take me out of here they're shooting i'm going to get, get killed I and get i looked it. at him and i said Give me that effing phone, <laughs> and I went. Okay, here's the situation. Give me the rewrite desk. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a play-by-play -play as this is going on, and they could hear the shots and and the explosions of the burning bus. I mean, it was like I should have been on radio. It would have been great. And you were like 18, 19 years. I was old. 18. Yeah, 18. Yeah, uh, 69, 18. Yeah, I was born in 51. Mm -hmm. um, so as that calmed down and they brought, they sent in more reporters, they said, okay, now there's riots on the streets, looting on, on St. Catherine Street. I said, okay. So I didn't get injured in the melee there with Good the shots hear. and yeah. the fire. So off I go to cover the looting uh, with a photographer. And my job would be not only to do the interviews, but to run interference. So the photographer would take a picture of a looter and then I would get in the way and he would run he would run so he wouldn't get his camera taken right well so you were rescuing your colleagues I, well i was standing in the way of the, the looters so he can get away well i guess obviously this guy didn't like it and the next thing i knew i was down and out <laughs> like, yeah, 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 you hit you in the head Street. right yeah. yeah you're lying there in your own I'm blood there, right I'm lying there in blood that was trickling in blood 
And then, uh, and, this, and Sydney Margulies from CJAD is sticking a microphone in my mouth, in my face, saying, Steve, what happened? And so I, I said, I don't know. I, I may have said, I don't even know. And then I noticed my hand was all scraped. And my watch is gone. My brand new Boulevard watch that I bought two weeks before yeah. was two weeks salary. I think it was like a hundred bucks. Yeah, my right? dad had one of those Boulevards, right? Yeah, yeah. And right. and I was making like fifty bucks, fifty-five bucks a week. So I had to save up, you know. And and it was gone. So that's when I swore. So I went back to the to the to the newsroom, and they said, oh, "We don't appreciate you swearing on, <laughs> on the air." You know, but they paid for my watch. Did they? Oh yeah, they uh, paid for my. Work. That was good of them. But anyway, so I, I I still think it's ironic to this day that I, that I, I unscathed at this riot and shooting and everything, and I go, and some looter knocks me out. Yeah, honestly, yeah. kind of ironic. Did are you a were you a fearless guy? Are you still fearless? Um, I think I'm just crazy. <laughs> You're a little yeah, nuts. Yeah, I'm crazier than a shit house rat. Yeah. 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 I. Yeah. I. Um, yeah. No. I, I'm not afraid. If If the story is over there to my right, I'm going there, and you're not going to stop me. And, and did you feel protected by your career? In other words, I'm a journalist. Nothing can happen to me. Or is that just who you are as a human being? Probably who I am as a human being. I'm a, I'm a, a take charge guy. When I was in high school uh, with my friends, I was the one who they would turn to and say, what are we doing tonight? Right. Right. Well, we can do this. Okay. Yeah. So it was like I would be the organizer. I would call everybody. Okay, let's, let's go. It was Expo 67, right? My last year of, uh, of high school. Let's go to Expo. Well, let's go. We're going to go. Let's meet here. Let's do that. Let's take a cab, whatever. So... Um, yeah, so I've I've always been like that. But I did use this thing. I'm a journalist and I have the right to go. Right. Right. And um and I was a police reporter and sometimes, you know, they didn't want me to be in a certain area and I said, Well, here's my here's my press card signed by the police chief. I'm going over there. Yeah, so Steve, that's a fascinating thing. I I'd love to hear your take on this. I have done radio over the years. As I said, you hired me and Marty at CFRB. And when you're walking around with a press card or the equivalent, whatever it happens to be, if you have a, a somewhat of a reputation, people know who you are, there is a real buzz in that. The idea that you may interview somebody, get their thoughts out on the air, you have a lot of control, don't you? Well, it's a buzz. Yeah. It's a buzz to show up on the scene. Like when I'd show up on the scene, I had a Kojak blue flashing light on my roof that I would put. Did I you? had headlights that flash. It was exciting. Right? So when I arrived, it was get out of my way. Coach is here. Coach is here. Yeah. Right? Um, and I would get away with that silliness with the cops. Right? Because after a while, it's they'd see me all the time. Oh, yeah, it's couch. Let him in. <laughs> it's not worth fighting with him. Just let him in. Yeah. But, you know, I got thrown out of many communities by the Quebec Provincial Police because they didn't like my reporting where, because I had sources, I would, I would, uh, they'd give their press conference and I'd go, yeah, I got a better story. Um, and they'd be really pissed off. So, I mean, I was at a hostage taking at a prison in uh, St. Jerome, Quebec, just north of Montreal, in the foothills of the Laurentians. 
And they said, uh, well, you think you know everything with your contacts? Then, then fine, you're on your own. You're not welcome here. We want you out of town. I said, you're throwing me out of St. Jerome? Yep. And next thing I know, the police are escorting me to the city limits. Really? Right. So I said, fine. Well, that created a stir with the other reporters, right? Um, so I'm halfway down to my, back to Montreal and my, uh, my cell phone rings, mobile phone rings. It's the PR people. Um, well, we changed our mind. We want you back. <laughs> oh, screw you. I ain't coming back. You're right. I don't need you guys. I have my sources and they're giving me more information than you're giving me. No, 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 no. You have to come back. This, this, uh, the, the, the reporters are, are like, are really pissed. They were up in arms. Yeah. Yeah. So what's in it for me? Well, we'll give you an exclusive. I said, okay, I'll come back. And sure <laughs> enough, they gave me an exclusive. Do you remember what that was, the exclusive? Well, it was just some crazy information. Yeah, yeah. Know. But, um, but I, I haven't thrown out it many times by the same people. But it became a joke. Is that a badge of honor? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah it, it would be, right? Oh, yeah. 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 You know, and especially because then the, the reporters realize if they don't stand up for me, yeah. right, They'll be next. They could be next. You can't. Yeah. You can't do this. You can't not allow him. You cannot stop him from coming to a press conference. He's in a. He's a police reporter. He's got the Sotis Quebec press pass. He's got the Montreal police press pass. Okay. You can't do that. He works for a major newspaper. So they knew that they do. So when I'd come back, they'd all be laughing. Hey, hey, you got thrown out again. Hey? You know. So, um, but the one time it didn't work. Yeah was with the uh, the October crisis when the War Measures Act was declared and the troops arrived, federal troops arrived in Montreal and they set up roadblocks and everything. Roadblocks mean absolutely nothing to me. <laughs> I can imagine. Right? I'm getting that I'm, sense, I'm, Steve. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, like, move your car or else, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember crossing that there was a bridge going into uh, St. Eustache or someplace north of Montreal they were letting the public through, but they weren't letting the press go over the bridge. Right. And I said, you're letting these people go, oui, mais pas journalistes, no journalists. I said, really? I said, and they, they had a shotgun, right? And he says, really? I said, I'm going. You can't say, if you let them through, you got to let me through. Right. And he picked up his shotgun and he pointed at me and I closed my eyes and I stepped on the gas. <laughs> and I got halfway across the bridge and I went, patting myself no seriously yeah so i had done that with the police and got away with it so when the army said you can't go there and i showed him my pass and i went uh yeah i can i can do that okay and he he raised his rifle put it through the window and said sir i will shoot you i have my orders i said no and I'm laughing. And he says, do you see me laughing? I went, no, I don't. <laughs> no. Okay. Where do you want me to go? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, back. You took this guy seriously. I, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's the army. Yeah. Right? Were you, we were the war. It was the War Measures Act. All democracy was suspended. Were you there when uh, uh, there was uh, Pierre Laporte yeah. was killed? Were, yep. you, were, you, were you covering that? Yep. I was at a bar. We should give a little context here, shouldn't we? Oh, We're talking about the FLQ. Right. They kidnapped the British Trade Commissioner on October 5th, 1970. And a few, and 
they were negotiating and it wasn't going anywhere. So the FLQ at the second, another cell went and kidnapped Pierre Laporte on the South Shore. What were their demands? Uh, they wanted them to read a uh, manifesto. They, they wanted people freed. They wanted Quebec to separate, right? Right. Well, they, they they weren't into the separation thing. They just they 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 just were terrorists. Well, in anarchy. Their own ter- anarchy. Yeah. So, so they kidnapped Pierre Laporte, and uh, so off we went. I, we were all sitting outside uh, uh, Cross's house, and, and you know in Westmount because we had this idea based on the kidnappings, the political kidnappings in Europe, where. The, uh, the person would be released and he'd show up back home in a taxi. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we all thought, well, that'll happen That's going to happen here, So yeah. we bet we have to be here 24-7. Okay. Anyway, so we off we rushed in South Shore of Montreal, uh, the South Shore of Montreal, and we got to, to Pierre Laporte's house. He was outside playing football with his, his sons or his nephews. And the car showed up, pulled him in, and, and off they went. So a week later... Uh, they were not giving in to anything, and the War Measures Act was out, so there was no negotiations. It was like a, a search. And he had been kidnapped by then, he yeah. He had been kidnapped, and uh, he was being held in St. Hubert, which was just down the road from where he had been kidnapped from, from St. Lambert. And he tried to get out. The story is he tried to get out through a broken window, and they grabbed him. He had a chain uh, with a cross, religious cross. And they grabbed him, and they grabbed him by the chain, and they strangled him. I did not know that. Yeah. And then they put him in the car, and they brought him to the uh, to the St. Hubert Airport, a military airport at that, and in nearby in one of the parking lots. And then they sent out a communique. That's where you could find him. He was in the trunk of the car. He was in the trunk of the car. So I was at, uh, at a bar with my friends because it was a Saturday. As a matter of fact, it was Jean Kippur. Because Sidney Margley's had to get permission from his rabbi to work. Really? Yeah. Well, because he's he's a he's a he's a devout Jew, so. And he got the permission. And he got he got the permission. I mean, yeah. it's a huge story, right? Yeah. Guy who gets kidnapped, the labor minister, so he had to get special permission from the rabbi. Um, so I get a page from my sources saying uh, we think we found Laporte. He's in the trunk of a car. We're waiting for the bomb squad because we're worried that there may be a bomb or whatever. So I tell my friends and people hear me, and it spreads like wildfire throughout the bar. And I so I got to go. And uh, my friends tell me, like, within 10 minutes, the bar is empty. Yeah. yeah. It was like everybody was in shock, and people just said, no, we can't. We're going home. And... Um, and then it, it progressed and until like, oh my God, it was freezing. It was, and it was snowing when they found them, when they found the cross in Montreal North, I think. And uh, so, yeah, that was the October crisis. I, was, I often wondered, Steve, what was the feeling at that time when they found him dead? Oh, it was, it was just an incredible shock. Like that doesn't happen in Canada no. or didn't. No, no. No, so it was. I we were stunned. I was stunned. Yeah, but I mean, like, but I just oh my god, okay, we gotta figure out how do we cover this. Um, but no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Like troops in the the streets, streets, right, with uh, rifles and bayonets guarding buildings, right. 
uh, no, there was a fear. There was a fear, like, who's next? Right. If, you know, they. this is the second person they kidnapped, and they've killed him? What's next? Yeah, we never Are they going to go and that. steal somebody else? You know, so it was a crazy time. Crazy, crazy, crazy so, time. So, so here you are. You're 18 years old. So 1970? Uh, I'm 19 years old. You're, in the, you're really in the beginnings of your career, right? <laughs> you're in Montreal. You're working for the major newspaper. That's, that's the, the, the Montreal. Montreal Star. The Montreal yeah. Star. and. Yeah. I don't know. From from what I can see and from knowing you, you were a star early on, right? Like I said, you seem fearless. Yeah, yeah. And you got you got the angle all the time, right? Well, I, I see. I, I as I say in my book, I talk about if you want to be successful yeah. in anything, yeah, right, not just in media, but especially in media, you have to be a member of the twenty five percent club, and the twenty five percent club is you don't believe in can't. You don't believe in won't. Right. You're positive. It's all about being positive. And 75% of the people in the media, and I say this with all due respect, 75%, if they're not lazy, they're just clock watchers. Yeah. They're just going through the paces. They're doing their job. And they're probably doing a good job. I would agree. But they don't have the passion that I have. Right? So um, that's what made me would made me great. It wasn't that I was a great reporter. I mean, in my mind, I was the best. You were the best in the world. <laughs> right, That's the way it's know? supposed to be. But it's like, um, I would get a scoop and, you know, it's like you're with the competition every day. You're, you're, you spend more time with the competition on the road than you do with the people you work with in the newsroom right. because you're out. So, and I would always help people. Right? Somebody came late to a press conference, I'd give them the tape because I was always late and that so I could get the tape. You, you help each other. But they'd come to me and they'd say, how did you get that story? And you know what they'd say? Every single time I'd say, well, I picked up the phone and I called or I just went. Oh, I didn't think they'd talk so I didn't bother going. Oh, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to go all that way. Well, so I didn't go. Well, guess what? You didn't get the story, right? I mean, what, what was fascinating about all this is that you said, again, in, in this book that you wrote, which is a wonderful book, again, it's called Making It Big in Media, and it's available on Amazon. You, you basically said you're born a star. In other words, that you could tell early on, if you take a clear look at what your DNA is, if you love storytelling, then you're likely meant to be a journalist. If you love the minutia of words, you're probably going to be a really good editor. You said you cannot train someone to be talented. No. No. I I could only help coach that talent to come out, to make you realize that you can do it. Right. Right? Um, so I'm curious. My mother used to say, my wife says it too now, she, she says, I drive her crazy. But it's always somebody will say something and I'll go, why? Right, right. I always said, why? And they'd answer and I'd say, but why? So I do that. Lizzie said, you can't do that. Why? And she goes crazy, right? right that's what little like, kids do, by the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. That's what she said yeah, to me. You're yeah. not a kid. Go to your room. Why? why? Because yeah, I'm yeah. telling you why. why? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there was always a why with me. There was always like, uh, I, I want to get that story, um, you know? And I wrote the book 
because of my teaching at Humber College and Seneca College. Because I'd tell the stories, right? I'd give them examples because I'd say, listen, I'm not Walter Cronkite, right? But I'm a positive thinking person. And I believe that if there's a story to be told, I should go and get it. So I want you in my class to be members of the 25% club. And then, and they so at the end of the, of the course, they'd all say, tell us some more Stevie stories. Yeah, the Steve right? Couch stories. Yeah, yeah. And I loved it because my wife's heard my stories 10 hundred times. <laughs> my girls have heard them all. Yeah, your so wife they, goes, honey, I know year, that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah every yeah. year was a new audience, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I said, and they approached me, the 99 series people. And I said, mom, but I, I haven't broken big, big, big stories. These are like local stories. They said, yeah, but it's how you did it. And this is a how-to book. So I said, okay. And that's, so that's why I really wrote it. What I loved in light of this is, a, is an article you wrote for your blog on, on how you covered 9-11. You, you said every few minutes something huge Oh, we, what's happening? Eight forty-six. The first plane goes yeah. into the World Trade Center. I think nine o three or nine o six. The second one does. Yeah. Then fifteen twenty minutes later, the first tower falls. A plane drops in Philadelphia. Another one on the Pentagon. You say, "How the hell am I supposed to cover this?" Well, my staff was going, "How the hell are we supposed to cover right. this?" And I looked at them and I went, "Because it was huge." I mean, let's face it, probably was, the biggest thing of your career. No? Oh yeah, the, yeah. For the bad, and nothing's been bigger sense yeah. you know not even the gulf war i mean that was a war but this was an attack and i said okay 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 how do i gotta get them i gotta calm them down and i said so i called a meeting right we went to commercial and i called a meeting and i said we've done this before we've done plane crashes right. before yeah but never like yeah yes okay more people more victims but the scenario was the same we got to cover this and not get freaked out over the scope of what's happening. And so that's when I start, that's when I realize, okay, what are we missing? The most important question for someone who's producing breaking news coverage is what are we missing? And I did that with the staff every 15 minutes or so. And not just with, with you, the announcer, or you, the anchor. It was the announcer, the anchor, the newsroom, the the uh, the operator, the producers. Everybody had a everybody voice. Everybody has. Everybody is working on this story. Everybody sees things differently, and they have ideas, right? But they've never been asked because oh, I'm just a producer. Well, maybe a producer should, but the op, right? So I said, let's gather five minutes. What are we missing? What are we missing? What should we be doing? And people say, well, you know, we have that great interview that we have, and we should replay it. Because TV, CNN does that all the time, Yes, right? they do. So I said, okay, get that interview. What else? And they'd say this, 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 this. And it didn't matter if it was the anchor or if it was somebody just walking down in the hall. I mean, even if it was sales pe people, because they were listening, right? Oh, did you? Oh, yeah, yeah. We just They were walking down the hall. We grabbed them. Yeah. Okay, we're doing a... What are we missing meeting here? Mm. Very quickly, what do you think is missing from our coverage? What should we be doing? You know, and they said, well, you know, maybe we should be opening up the lines. Well, there was a bit of a debate there, you know. I said, okay, let's, we we have to open up the lines because people are in such a shock, they want to talk about it. Why, why wouldn't you open up the lines? Well, because they thought, the news people thought, well, we got to tell the story and the story is still developing. 
And I said, yeah, but this is so big that we need people to, they, they need to react. Yeah, of course. They need to cry. They need to ask, what's my God, what's going on? They yeah. have family in New York or whatever. So we, so they sort of said, hey, okay. So I said, let's try it. We're not going to do it for an hour. We're going to open up the lines. And while we're opening up the lines and taking calls, we could be looking to track down other people. Yeah. Right? So that's what we did. So to me, that was, it changed the way I did breaking news. I didn't only do this in the future for like huge things like 9-11, but breaking news where everything's coming at you, right? Not as fast as 9-11, but it's, it, it makes for better coverage. It makes so that we don't go home and say, damn, we should have done that. Right, right. Right? And it also creates a team. It created a, a, a good team because everybody felt ownership that um, he cares about what I think. So that made things even easier. Like, for example, at CFRB and CJD, it took a while at CJD. They were a bit laid back. And CJD is in Montreal. Yeah. CFRB is here in, in Toronto. Here in Toronto. Um, I, Pat Holliday, my general manager, one of my best general managers, Gary Slate was number one because he would let me do things that he even he disagree, if he disagreed with because he'd say you're going to do it anyway so go yeah. ahead and do it. Well, Gary Slate was the owner of he CFRB. He was the owner of CFRB, but I knew if he said that, I better be on the money. <laughs> you better do it well. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he doesn't want me to do this. By the way, it was really nice what you said about Pat Holiday in the intro to your book. You said he was one of your best bosses ever, and he taught you how to be a compassionate boss. Yep. That was lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Rob Braid in Montreal yeah. as well. Um, but, but Pat said to me, and I didn't realize this, but he says, you know, he says, people are talking. Yeah, about what? About you? I said, well, Pat. They always talk about me, yeah. right? I'm, Which is what you I'm, want. I'm a moving target. You wanted that, didn't you? Yeah, but I'm a moving target, If they don't right? talk, you actually said if this you too. Don't, don't, if they don't talk about if you, don't, yeah. then you don't matter. You don't yeah. count. You're you, not, you, you're that's not right. successful. That's right. You actually said that, yeah. yeah. And even if they're bad-mouthing you, they're going to bad-mouth me anyway, <laughs> yeah. so I don't care. I don't take it like totally personal. Well, you said at the, at the, at the, at the beginning of this interview, ask me anything. Call me an asshole. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I know I'm an asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I I now that I'm retired and I look back, oh gee, I got, geez, you know what? If I saw that person, I think I'd get on my knees and and beg for forgiveness. I have that too as a boss. Yeah, yeah, I understand that you totally. Know, you know, um, we make mistakes as bosses. That's, yeah, it's right. You know, yeah, we do. We don't. And then we I do. go, oh damn, I, I, I shouldn't have lost my temper. You have know? you ever gone? That's my uh, passion, right? Have that's you ever gone passion. out of your way to find someone to apologize? Oh yeah, I have too. Yeah. Can, can you give me an example? Um. Well, I, I did it on Facebook when I announced that I was like shutting down Couch Media after 10 years and it's time and I've done enough. And I talked about my career a bit and I said, and you know what, for the record, I know that some people think I'm an asshole. And if I was an asshole to you, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. And then I moved on. So I thought then all these people, all the haters would come out. The and floodgates would open. would be like, yeah, you are an effing asshole. You know, this <laughs> and, that. and instead, people came to my defense and said, no. He says, you were a tough boss, yeah. right? And you didn't put up with any crap. But if you were an asshole, and they'd say like, and I saw you when you were an asshole. But it's because the people who you were being an asshole to were useless, were useless. Right. And you couldn't, they weren't living up to 
what you wanted them to do. They weren't living up to their potential, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They were a 75% club member, and I have no time for that. So, but, yeah, so if I've been an asshole to you and you hear me today talking, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay? It's a good time right before Yom Kippur. Yes, yes. I mean, you're a Gentile, but it yeah, still works. But I'm an honorary Jew. You're married to a Jew. I'm yeah. married to yeah. a Jew. So, you were talking about Pat Holiday before. Unbelievable guy. Unbelievable, passionate, believes in people, encouraged me. I mean, he put up with a lot of shit from me. Yeah. You know, and so did Gary Slate, and so did Rob Braid. Um, but they believed in me, you know, and I learned that it's important that I believe in the people who work for me. But I brought this up because what Pat was saying to me is, people are talking because of your posse. I went, what are you talking about? He says, you go to lunch with your posse. No, I go to lunch with Ryan Darrell, Robert Turner, Bill Carroll, like I listed them, right? And he says, yeah, that's your posse. Yeah, those are your boys. Yeah, those are your boys. But I said, yeah, but... He's my he's my my uh, executive producer. He's my morning guy. He's my my uh, my chief op. He's you know. He says you need to take other people out to lunch. You don't realize how important that is. So then I started doing that. That's a big deal, isn't yeah. it? I know. I know. But I said to him though. I said, "You think that I'm out with my posse? I'm going to tell you something. I may be out with my posse, but these guys, they're shitting all over me." Throughout the lunch, <laughs> right? They're, why are you doing this? We don't want to do this. We don't want, so like, it's like I'm having to say like, no, no, we need to do this. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I believe that you have, they, they have a right to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Otherwise, I don't have the right to tell them what they're doing wrong. You were open to it. I was open to it. I think they called it managerial courage or something. It's managing up and down. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, it's yeah. much more in vogue than when our parents were working, well, right? not only that, but... You it, would never tell your boss that he was wrong. No. Well, I'd never really tell Gary Slade he was wrong. I would hint. Did it's, he get the hint? Well, yeah. That's when he'd usually say, well, because <laughs> I'd wear him down. <laughs> I'd wear him down. Yeah. You know? He says, but you're going to do it anyway. So. But I knew that it had to be that if I was doing it, it had to be great. So, but... It's media. It's it's a creative business. You can't shut people down. Yeah. I want to know if they think we're doing the right thing or, or what have you, right? And you need that in this business. And you know what? It's not there today. People are afraid in media today. The bean counters are in charge, right? Um, the, I mean... You walk into radio stations, there's, I don't think they're having as much fun today, the young people, as we did. I could be wrong. I could be, well, you're just an old fart, and that's what you think, you know. But I learned every day something because I would let them tell me. Robert Turner, who's, who does the early edition, and he's the, he's the chief op, and he, he ops the morning show. Yep. Okay. Um, there, people would say, boy, there's a lot of yelling going on in your office during meetings. I said, yeah, but do you listen? Who's doing the yelling? You don't hear me yelling. It's the other guy. It's everyone's yelling at me. Like, why are you doing this? Why do we, I don't want to do this. And Robert Turner used to say it all the time. He, cause he'd see like I was going like crazy, biting my tongue. And uh, he'd put his hands up and he'd say, Steve, they're not yelling at you. 
they're yelling at the situation. Right. And it's a great line. Right. Because it's true. And I use that all the time now. I say, I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at the situation. Well, it feels like you're yelling at me. I know. I've been there. <laughs> so, so I remember when Marty and I, we were at CFRB for five years. And I remember when you first hired us. And I also remember the meetings that we used to have with you. Um, the very first meeting we had, we were sitting down and trying to figure out what we were going to call the show. And Marty and I came in. We just came in from Toxics 40, a five-year stint. And you said to us, well, what do you guys do? I mean, you knew, but you were sort of bringing it out of us. We said, we're food guys. You said, okay, Marty and Avram, the food guys. And I'm saying, uh, no, it's got to be a little bit more. You know, I'm thinking more Talmudically, right? You said, no, that's what that's who you guys are. That's it. Marty and Avram, the food guys. And that's who we were. And it worked really well. Yep. Yeah. You guys were crazy. Yeah, and we so ate well, too. We ate really we well. We ate really well. Yeah, we did. We did. Well, Marty had a penchant of bringing in as many people as possible. Well, Marty had a posse. <laughs> yeah, Marty the did restaurants have a posse. would complain to me. He, he says, did. well, Marty, I just says, listen, we appreciate you guys doing, giving us publicity and everything. But really, Marty would come in like with a dozen people. A dozen was a small yeah. uh, and, amount. And expected us to feed him. And he says, well, of course we're going to feed him. What are we going to do? Yeah. Right? So I'd have to have a chat with you guys saying, okay, you guys, guys, you know what? You're the food guys. You don't right. need a posse. Right. You know, it was insane. Mar Marty's idea is, and by the way, it still is. He just started a show. It's a podcast. He's doing video as well on marijuana. <laughs> he's never smoked in his life he doesn't even know no. what it is but he goes I don't well, even think he drinks no he doesn't drink but Marty's smart he's very resourceful oh, yeah, yeah. he's very bright and so he's, and he's funny he's funny as hell he's funny yeah. he's a hard worker yes he is right he's an organizer yep and uh, I mean I remember the time you guys came to me and said we should do a house party <laughs> right I went okay whose house yours mine <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We'll get Studio 1010, park it in the driveway, and we'll have all these chefs come in right. and celebrities, and we'll have all the on-air people. And I went, y really? Right, that's you, right. You think they'll come? He said, well, and you guys said, well, of course they'll come. You're the boss. They're, they're not going to say no. Yeah. And we did it on a Saturday night. I think we extended the hours of the show. It was phenomenal. The mayor of Mississauga, Hazel, dropped by. I was just going to say, she was probably young at that, 98 or 99. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she dropped by. Uh, she was supposed to be going other places. And she decided, nope, that's it. She called. She said, I'm not going. We're staying here. And she sat on our living room couch. My girls were there. They were, like, sitting with her. They thought this was unbelievable. The green room was our bedroom upstairs. <laughs> at the top of the stairs was where the studio was. That's right. And the rehearsal room was in the other bedroom on the left, right? And uh, told stories. Ryan Doyle tells tells the mayor. He says, "Oh, she says, I have to tell you." He said, "Because uh, I grew up in Mississauga, and we had a visit to your to your office, and I stole a pen." <laughs> Is that what he told her? Is that right? He says, "I stole your pen from your desk." <laughs> it was the fun, but it was fun, and the food. Oh my God, there was so much food. Well, that's Marty. That's all Marty. He there, would. There bring must have been like five chefs. 
took over the kitchen and the dining room. Right, and right. And you're not talking about hot, hot dogs and burgers. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. Oh, no. I they remember were making, somebody made pad thai, somebody made catfish. I remember Pat Holliday was all excited, the catfish. <laughs> there was like plates of sandwiches. Yeah. Where we had to send it to the, uh, to the, uh, to one of the uh, shelters. Right. So the mayor calls, the police says, I need you to bring, we're at this, and there's so much food and you need to bring it to the shelters. And so they came and they brought it to the shelters. Yes, you know? and we were bringing like carpaccio to the shelters. <laughs> <You> <laughs> it know? was unbelievable. But it was a great broadcast. It was. It was pe- people, t- the hosts were talking about themselves and reminiscing and everything. Oh, it was good. We we used to do uh, shows such as uh, we did a, a, a bris, a bris, which is a circumcision. Now, it wasn't a real bris. I actually taped one that morning before I came to the show. We did a wedding. I think this might have been a talk 640, but we had a priest who came out and someone uh, renewed their vows. And again, the, the food was unreal. I mean... So we did shows at different times. Sometimes they were Sunday morning. Sometimes they were Saturday night. But whatever, we always knew that by the time we left, we would be stuffed yep. with some of the best food in town. Yep. And uh, some of the people we brought in, too. Marty was able to get uh, Michael Buble. And I remember introducing my mom to Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> uh, we would go out to remotes. I mean, you talk about the potential of having great fun in our career it was all there life was exciting right the other thing too is there were a lot of people who didn't like the show that's correct okay (laughs) that is true too right but for the wrong reason yeah they said well this is cfrb yeah 1010 right it's 1010 (laughs) cfrb the home of gord sinclair blah 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 you know um you should be doing serious thing and i'd say on a saturday night yeah in the summertime right really because the beauty about you guys is there was always things going on. So we'd have you out of the studio right. with all the, you know, and the, the food fairs and everything. But I said, it's, and that's how what I said to Gary Slade. I said, Gary, it's Saturday night. Okay. Nobody's calling up and talking on Saturday night. They're either listening to music radio, they're going out, they're watching TV. We need to give them a reason to come to CFRB and laugh and have fun. That's why you guys lasted for five years. Yeah, we did. But, but nothing lasts forever in radio. No. Okay. So no. five years was a long run. It is a long run. Yeah. It is a long run. Yeah. I mean, the, you know why we left though, finally? You didn't fire us. No. No. The reason why we left is you called us in and you said, we're doing budget cuts, which that must have come out of your mouth many times over your career. And you said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to cut your salary in half. And we weren't making that much to begin with. Radio's not known for how much it pays. So I said, I can't do this anymore because I had started in a nonprofit called Via Hafta. Poor Marty, this was his life. He absolutely loved it. So it was a very difficult time. And because you see upper management and the bean counters, uh, the numbers, the ratings, and it's Saturday night. Why are we spending this money? You should be spending it someplace else. Right. It was was an argument I could not win. Yes. Right? So – it was, and it wasn't. It wasn't just your show. It was like uh, I had a lot of weekend programming. You had fascinating programming. Yeah, yeah, but it was expensive. Well, it was expensive because you add it all up. Yeah, and it could practically pay uh, another host. Well, one of the guys that we mentioned before was Mark Elliott. Yes, who you were really fond of, weren't you? He yes. just he passed away about a year ago. Yeah, I'm. I'm so happy that I took Mark and his. Um, his, his boyfriend or his husband for supper. It was his birthday. It wasn't Mark's birthday. It was his birthday. And they were down in the dumps. 
they, they, they had no money. I says, come on, you pick the restaurant. We're going to go and we're going to celebrate his birthday. And uh, that was a couple of months before he died. Um, Where'd you go? A, a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. Okay. That they chose, yeah. you know, a little hole in the wall, good food. And they brought a cake, and we sang, brought a cake, and I sang happy birthday. That's nice. You know? And, um, but Mark Elliott was more than just a, uh, a guy on the radio who could talk about uh, addiction. Which was, was, that was his thing. That was his thing. People he, helping people. Yeah. And I put it on CJD in Montreal because, again, it was, was it Saturday or Sunday night? Saturday night at 11 until 1 in the morning or whatever. Um, and I saw, I thought, this, this is when the lonely are out, are up listening, the, you know, the, the drug addicts or whatever. So it worked. But then, you know, budget cuts were coming and, uh, you know, the, you can't, can't, can't afford them. But he, what I noticed is because uh, there were times of breaking news would be happening when he was on the air doing yeah. people helping people. Yeah. And he was unbelievable how he would just change gears and go into breaking news coverage. And if there was breaking news, I was there, whether it was a Saturday night, Sunday night, two in the morning, because I felt I need to be there to support them and help them. So you would get called away from wherever you were? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did that piss off your wife? No, she's a saint. Liz. My first wife. Pissed off. Pissed off. And that's why it ended your marriage. That's why, yeah. yeah. As I, I said in my book, she said, you know, I wish you were having an affair. <laughs> Is that what I she could, said? Yeah. I could have competed against another woman. I couldn't compete against your job. Yeah. And did you did you love her a lot, your first wife? Yeah. Yeah, she was my childhood sweetheart. Did you make a choice then? About? Between your career and your wife. I never saw it as a choice. I saw it as that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. You know? And um, but also too though, childhood sweethearts don't tend to last long because you grow up and you start developing your personality and everything. And so we were like moving away. But it, it the job didn't help. Yes. Right. Um, so I said, can I use that line in my book? <laughs> and and she said she says yeah she says maybe somebody will read it and not be as crazy as as you were and i used that in my class at the height of the um of the semester when it was crazy busy and they all had projects to deliver and everything my project for them next week is i want you to stop and smell the roses and I tell them the story of what my wife said. And I said, you know what? A career doesn't help you when you're sick. Doesn't help you when you're sad. Okay? A career doesn't give you a shoulder to cry on or a hug when you need it or some compassion when you're feeling sad. And if you don't take the time to spend time with your friends or your family, your wife, girlfriend, what have you, you're going to be lonely one day. And it's job, no job is worth it. So you need to stop and smell the roses and build this into your schedule. Right? And 
it became a very successful assignment mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people would they say, oh yeah, but I'm busy. I got no, no, no. Go see a movie, read a book, go have lunch with a friend, make a phone call, do something, and for ten marks. You come back and you tell me what you tell the class. What oh, you that's did. beautiful. And it was the most amazing stories. And the story that impacted the most on everybody, and especially on me, is there was this, like, there's a lot of older people in Humber and Seneca taking these courses yeah. for radio. Because yeah. they feel, well, I don't like my job and radio must be fun. Uh, you know, and I try to, it's fun, but... It's hard work. It's stressful. I know, very stressful and very time consuming. So, but no, he wanted to quit his job and go into radio. And I'd say, you're not going to get a job in Toronto. You're going to have to go out into the boonies and you're going to make like maybe 150, 200 bucks a week. Yeah. So it's not, you got a family. He, he went, did his, did his assignment. He came back and he had everybody in tears. He said, I realized when I spent time with my family that I had everything I wanted, everything I needed. I had a job, had a loving wife, Uh I had children who I love and love me, and we have a good life. I decided after spending the time, I'm not going to throw this away to go work in radio. I already have a good life. That's lovely. And we were like in tears. Everybody is hugging him. Everybody's crying. Everybody's yeah. crying. And then he uh, decided then to to quit the course because he said, "I, I don't, I don't." It's, it was a dream, but it was not. It it, it was. It would have turned into a nightmare. Those are special moments in our lives, aren't they? Yep. Those are the things that we we always remember. I often say, listen, we don't pass through this earth for very long. Life is a blip. Going to make a difference. Yeah, and at the end of our days, like we say in Jewish, you should live to 120. I'm sure you're familiar with that. We're going to be lying on our bed, and we're not necessarily going to remember when we went to air, you know, or necessarily that story that broke. It's the love that's in our life. What's really beautiful... uh, about your book is at some point you say, I thank my daughter so much, the two girls, for helping me to stop and, as you say, smell the roses. Yeah, I, I often say to them or apologize to them that, you know, maybe I wasn't that good a father. And they go, oh, dad. But they look at each other and I could see the look is... Yeah, he's right. But they don't want to say it. Because you weren't around? Because I wasn't around. But I tell you, I saw you with your family. You're a very loving family. Oh, yeah. Very huggy. Very Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's the beauty about warm. having girls. You got to hug them. Yeah, yeah. Right? You can't hug a you can't hug a 19-year-old yeah, son. But but you're nuts about your family, oh, aren't you? Yeah. I I always saw that. I always saw when you were with Liz, you were like boyfriend and girlfriend. Yep. You know. Yep. And she she understood. Listen, um, I had a farm on the south shore of Montreal in St. Constant. What kind of farm was it? It was just uh, six acres. Like a hobby farm? A hobby farm. Yeah. Well, we didn't do it, but it was space. Did you have a goat? No. No goats. No goats. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no chickens. I had ducks. Ducks are nice. Until there they was quack. The, until there was the St. Constant massacre where the, the dogs, the, the water, I had a big pond and the water sort of froze. 
So the dogs came and they, they attacked my ducks and oh. died in my arms. Oh. oh, it was very sad. You had ducks die in your arm? Yeah. Little, I, little ducks that had just been like born. Little ah, it breaks my heart. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I had a bird flutter and pass away in my hand too. Oh. This was by, after a very bad date that I was on. I, I saw a bird on the ground. I picked it up and it died in my hand. And I thought, I probably shouldn't be with this woman. <laughs> yeah. This, is a, this was, is a sign. It was an omen. It was an omen. Yeah. So... Um, I convinced Elizabeth to move to the farm and I told her I have no shame. I said, Lizzie, it's a kibbutz. Yeah. Because Lizzie's Jewish, right? A kibbutz. It's a kibbutz. Which is like communal living. Yeah, yeah. And it was a great party house because it was like nothing. It was like when nobody was around. It was like we had a we had a pool. I burned down the barn because I was burning the grass. Did you? Yeah. yeah I thought I was going to go to jail for arson. <laughs> and the fireman. Steve Couch arrested. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the station calls me. There's a big fire on the South Shore. I said, no, no, that's my barn. You could see it burning. It burned <laughs> that's for a me. week. <laughs> it's me. Anyway, so uh, it was insured as an outbuilding. I got 10% of what the house was insured for. I got $10,000 I put in a, a pool. Swimming pool. Good. I called it Urban Renewal. <laughs> <laughs> turned out well. It turned out well. But um, uh, it was it was tough because I, I, I was away. But Liz, anyway, so Lizzie put up with that. And then she moves in. And what happens is that day, Gord Sinclair Jr., the son of Gord Sinclair Sr. in Toronto, front page challenge and everything, uh, says, well, we want you to go to Quebec City and be the Quebec City bureau chief on the day that Elizabeth moves into the farm. The woman is a saint. She stayed with the dog, and I came home on weekends. And uh, it, and then we were both off in the summer. So it was good. And then I went to Toronto, and she says, well, I have a career. I, gotta, I can't leave right away. So it was back and forth. Why did she do it? I don't know. I guess she loves me. You're lovable? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I infuriate her all the time with why, But why, you're why, lovable. But I'm lovable. You know that about yourself. Uh, like, you have a pretty good self-image. Well. Were your parents good parents? No. My dad was an alcoholic. And my mother, um, uh, my mother was very negative and unhappy and wasn't well. Didn't believe in me. Like, um, how did you rise above that? I know. You know what? To like me, you're, you're not, a, you're that's not that's a drinker nothing. anymore, right? No. Well, I mean, I, I said to my doctor, your you know, green your martinis, yeah. my green apple martinis. My doctor says, uh, do you drink? I says, yeah, yeah. I like, I like my apple martini. <laughs> he says, how many? I says, three. He says, a day? Yeah, right. I said, no, no, on Saturday night. He says, that's not drinking. <laughs> that's not even drinking. That's not no. even drinking. No. But uh, you know what? I think back of my childhood, not a happy childhood. No support, uh, bullied, and uh, how did I get to be? And I think it's because deep down inside, I am a positive person. Yeah. I, I believed in myself. Well, I strive to be better because I, I know what it was like. My father wouldn't even sign my library card. My mother didn't want me to be a journalist. She says, oh, you, 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 you. people don't like journalists. They're nosy. They don't mind their own business. And I went, oh, okay. Did you love them? Yeah, I loved them. I loved them. But it wasn't, my mother wasn't warm and fuzzy. She was, you know, she was, uh, 
she was adopted. Um, she had a tough life, so she wasn't happy. And her husband was out drinking and what have you. So uh, we lived in a little, little flat. Whereabouts? In the East End in Rosemount. Uh, my bed was in the kitchen. It was one of these pull-out things. Yeah. And uh, they were down the hall, both they were down the hall. Like there was only another one other room. Um, we were poor. Um, you know, I, I I tell these, you know, like I, I bring this up with Lizzie all the time, you know, because we uh, we play the who who was poor. <laughs> who was poor? Yeah, I know who that game. Poor. I know that game. You know, and I say, well, I wasn't rich like you. <laughs> and Lizzie says, yeah, like like we were rich, you know. Um, but. But how how poor were you? What do you, what welfare. do you remember? You on guys were on welfare? on welfare, so you'd never ask your parents for something, like new shoes. No, no new shoes. No. Hockey no. equipment. Well, I wasn't in sports, but we couldn't have afforded it anyways. Uh, no, I um, I mean, I was okay. I mean, I I would remember my mother would have like one potato, and she'd make French fries. Yeah, and that was supper. Yeah, but I thought everybody ate that way. That's right. When you're a kid, yeah, your I, life is everybody's I, I, life. That's everybody's right. Life, you know, uh, the Salvation Army came one year for Christmas and brought a uh, a turkey, a basket, Christmas basket. Eh? My mother was so embarrassed. I said, "No, no, we'll take it." Yeah. Half an hour later, the doorbell rings. It's the church with another basket. I said, "Hold on a minute." I ran and I pushed the first basket under the bed. Yeah, and you took the second. <laughs> and I took the second. Yeah, you know. Did you ever talk about this in I an acceptance speech? Because you're an award winner. I talked about it on uh, when Mike Harris became premier and was slashing welfare and everything. All over the place. And CFRB is very right wing. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah. You yeah. Know, who cares about these people? I went. I said, oh, no, no, no. I got to go. I'm in Toronto, so my mother won't hear this story. And I walked in, eh? And, I, and there was a panel. So I said, you know By the what? way, are your parents gone? Yeah. They're yeah. both gone. I walked in and I said, um, I'm the only one in the room here who's been on welfare. Mm-hmm. So, let me tell you what it's like. And you could have heard a pin drop. And they just looked at me because they had never known. I had never talked about it, right? And I told them these stories. And um, What was it like? Well, it's, it's the only life I knew. So, I, my friends weren't rich, right? Uh, so, it's, but I mean, they looked and I said, and, and you know, when I told them about the, the Christmas baskets or I told them about welfare or I told them how, you know, sometimes um, supper would be French fries. And sometimes I would be sent, my mother would say I was a bad boy or something and sent me to bed. You got, you're not going to have supper. Go to bed. You're a bad boy. And it's only later I realized I wasn't because I was a bad boy. It's because there was no food. Yeah. And she didn't want to tell me there was no food. Oh, she sent you to bed because there was nothing nothing to to eat. eat. And she knew that I would fall asleep like that. I fall asleep like anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're narcoleptic by nature. (laughs) She'd feel bad and she'd come and uh, I'd be sleeping. And I'd wake up the next morning. But, uh, yeah, so it took me a while to put two and two together. Do you remember times when she was affectionate toward you? She wasn't an affectionate, an, an affectionate woman. So Liz says, she says, how, how could you be? Yeah. 
like you are with the girls yeah. and everything. And I says, because I, some people learn based on what people help them learn. I'm the complete opposite. I learned what I don't want to be. I didn't want to be like my father out drinking and never around. I don't want to be like my mother who would never hug me, would never come to my school play, um, would never say I did a good job. You know? Um, so that's what made me be who I am, is I could be better than that. I understand my father was an alcoholic. You know what? That's just how it was. And my mother had to put up with all this shit. And and they didn't live together for a while. And then they did live together. And But he would go to work and he would drink his money at the tavern and come back. And my mother would be a waitress and working hard and everything. So she she had a terrible life. And so when I was 17, I went and became worked at the Montreal Star and she insisted that I pay room and board and it was like $25 a week or so and you were like, making 55 and I was making 55 so half of that yeah but okay you know what if I can help that was a, but I mean you can go get two hot dogs a fry and a drink for for a quarter yeah back then yeah when I got married she gave me a check for like hundreds and hundreds of dollars that money that I gave her for room and board she put it in the bank she never touched it is that right yeah and that's the that's like the only time you know it's like oh my god you know you know you have a an inimitable spirit like you don't seem like a victim no, and I've never no, got I've never gotten that from you. No, I tell the story. I mean, I joke like, "Oh, poor Stevie," right? But it's because like I'm joking with her. But I, I feel bad. Like Lizzie's dad, Zadie, was like a dad to me. Yeah, dad I never had. Uh, my friend Ken Kalino, who I mentioned in the book. Your best buddy My ever. Best buddy. Everyone needs a Ken Kalino. Kalino to slap you in the side of the head when you're being an asshole. <laughs> when you're getting too arrogant. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. You know? And uh, and we've been friends. I mean, like, he's going to be 70. And I'm going to be 69. And we've been friends since we were in high school. We traveled to Europe. To, he's like my brother. He's the brother I never had. Zadie was the father I never had. You know? And the girls... The girls are, I didn't realize as much as when they were like six, seven, and eight, but as they got older, or, you know, like Melissa's in Montreal, Layla's in London, England, they were together, we were together a few months ago, and it was like, I, I was always like almost in tears, and they'd say, don't you cry. <laughs> but then they know how to make me cry, like on my birthday or something, if we're all together. Yeah. They each get a different card, and they... They write in it, and they know, okay, okay one goes first because this one is going to make him cry. And, and then they <laughs> laugh. They think it's funny, you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, uh, we talk talk every week. Do, do you ever get very dark? Is there a dark side to Steve Couch? No. I get dark if I'm an asshole. 
But um, and when you're an asshole, do you feel like an asshole, or is, is it more of an intellectual thing? No, and I, 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 I and feel I ask, it I, after when I after I've yelled. And I, but are you uh, really like viciously angry inside, or is it more like you need to hear my point? And I ask you for a reason. I grew up with a mean side. There was a mean side to my family, and I still have to fight it to this day. So when I'm teaching my son something, sometimes I can feel that mean side, and I fucking hate it. I, don't I, know I hate I th- it. I don't think I've had a mean side with the girls. Well, they say my eyes go googly, like my eyes start dancing. And they say that's when we know that's mad. That's that. Like you got to stay away. But um, like if I blow up at somebody, I kick myself for days. Yeah. Because I know it's wrong, and I feel bad. Lizzie says she'd never work with me. She says to is that what she said. She used to say to the staff, she says, "Believe it or not, <laughs> I feed him nice pills so that he's not mean to you." You know. And uh, so you're on meds, eh? <laughs> but but then the staff would say to her, like they'd be at the house for a barbecue or something, and they'd say, "If we didn't like your husband, yeah, we wouldn't be here." No, you were always a nice guy. You she were says, a nice guy. So he says, "Yeah, we know he could rant and rave, yeah, but he always has our back, right. and I do, I always have their back." Yeah, yeah. I, I'm listening to this and I thinking, I wish I had known you better. You know, I can get my back up too. I can be very defensive. I don't know if you sense that in me at all. But uh, but we worked with you for five years. I, I don't remember a time where you blew up at us. I don't remember a time where you ever threatened us. Uh, it was always very amicable, actually. When I went back to Montreal to take over CJ80, I was there for two, three years. Um, you know, when you're young and you get into man and you become a manager... You make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Okay, and I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of good, but I made a lot of mistakes. So there's thousands of stories about Steve Couch, right? So I get there and they introduce me and he's, Steve Couch is back and we're happy and everything and I could see it. I could see them looking and they're looking at each other. I go, okay, let me, let me, let me clear the air here. Yeah. I know there's a lot of stories about me. And I'm here to tell you that 99% of them, yeah. and I pause, and they think I'm going to say, not true. Yeah, right? I, read and I that. say, 99% of them, they're true. They're true. <laughs> and they gasp. But I said, I'm more mature. and I'm grown up. I'm grown up, and uh, I have to earn the right to give you hell. Right? And uh, when I left, I was a bit rough in the first year because I was they, they 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 were very lackadaisical and that that's my problem. I can't stand people who just don't do their job. I know I've seen that. Okay, so um, it's interesting because we talked about uh, some of the people whom you worked with here in Toronto, and there were major major news stories breaking, and they were just too laissez faire to go out and cover them, yeah. and it drove you nuts. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when it was time that I was leaving meeting you know and I said okay um, guys I'm they want me back in Toronto I'm going back to Toronto and I look around the room and I thought they're going to applaud right and they start crying really yeah uh, the, the guys are really like they're not really really crying but you could see but the women are crying 
They're emotional. It was a very emotional meeting. I turned to my promotions manager and I went, I thought they'd be celebrating. Right. He says, if you did this a year ago, they would be. <laughs> <laughs> right. Things have changed. Things have changed. Yeah. They, they, they got used to you. And, um, okay, you, you may be an asshole, but he's our asshole. Yeah. <laughs> he's our you know, asshole. He's yeah. our asshole. So you feel you have a good legacy then in radio? Well, I feel I have a legacy. I think there's some good stuff, and I think some people will will think bad stuff. Um, when you went back to your high school in Montreal and they said, ladies and gentlemen, a legend in radio, you comfortable with that? I introduced you that to, like that today. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know what? The, 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 book, the book came at a good time because I had been fired from CFRB. You know, and I, and I always said, right, in radio, it's not if, it's when. It's when. Okay? And I've been in newspapers and radio for 40 years at least, never fired. So, I mean, it, I had a great career. I covered the biggest stories. I produced some of the biggest news things, worked with some of the best talk radio hosts, best journalists. So, I had a great career. I, I have no qualms about my career. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, so... The book came at a good time because when you get fired, you're pretty low. Yes. Right? And they wanted me to tell my story. So it was good for me to say, yeah, maybe I wasn't that bad. Maybe I wasn't. And, you know, and, and it's, it's they, they, I mean, the format is 99 stories, right? So it, it was, a, it came at a good time where it was like when I finished it and I read it and I went, yeah, you know what? And I probably have more stories to tell. But the problem is, is that because I've been in this business so long and now I've been out for 10 years, right? I talk about Rennie Levesque or somebody, and I may as well talk about Sir John A. McDonough. It's true. It's these, true. These are like people that, what, really, who? Yeah, it makes you start, it starts to make you feel old. I have yeah. similar things happening, right? A lot of young kids have never heard of the Beatles, which is bizarre. Yeah, they know the band after the Beatles. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know? So so I wanted to ask you something. So you're now basically in retirement mode. You're getting your morning naps and you're getting your afternoon naps. Love them. Love them. You do enjoy your naps. So, yes. Well, they're good. They strengthen you, right? Yeah. Um, there are a few things about retirement, and I want you to comment on these things, which are extraordinarily important to, I guess, to survive a retirement. Some people, unfortunately, retire, and they don't live long afterwards because they don't have meaning in their life, right? So I'm just curious, how did you do the following? Um, according to streetdirectory.com, one of the most important things in retirement is to refocus your life. Do not consider yourself retired in the traditional sense. Yes, you're no longer working for your past employer, but you are certainly not at the end of your rope. Agreed? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, you know, for someone who's retired, yeah. I'm busy. But I'm busy with silly things. Like what? Like but what? Thing, like but what? things that I like to do. Like what? Well, I mean, like, you're potchking a lot. What's that? Potchking is Yiddish for like, I'm just... Fooling around, yeah, I'm yeah, playing yeah, with yeah, things, yeah, right? Yeah, I got to cut the grass. I got to do this. Yeah, I, I water. I water the, my garden out there in yeah, the balcony. Yeah, yeah. I got to do the groceries. So like, I'll go and I'm supposedly doing the groceries, right? But I go, okay, I got to go to Loblaws. I got to go to Highland Farms, and I go. Anyways, I come back three hours later. 
Yeah, right. Right? And I say to Liz, I could have been in Kingston <laughs> by this, right? Yeah. But it's like, I don't care. It's like, and I look and I, and I come back with stories all the time. I come back and tell her, oh, you should have seen this guy was fighting with his wife or the kid was screaming. Or It's like, she says, only you can go to Loblaws and come back with a story. Yeah, right, because you're a storyteller. Because I'm a story. I was, uh, and I look for these things. It drives her crazy because sometimes I forget that I've told her this story yeah. 10 times. Yeah. Right? But, um, and so, uh, and we do things together. We, we, we have date night, which is very important. That's lovely. You know? And it's not like it doesn't have to be expensive. What do you do on date night? Date night? I go and I hold her hand at the restaurant. You do hold her hand? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we hold hands going out and we laugh. We laugh a lot. You I, lean over and kiss her? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love and that. I try to make her laugh. And, I, and she's funnier than I am. Is she? She's funnier than I am because she's, she's the straight person yeah. in the relationship. So I'll say something that I think is hysterical and I'm laughing and I'll say to her all the time, hey, do you, am I funny or what? <laughs> and she just looks at me and says, do you see anybody laughing? And I'm on the floor. Just on the floor, or else, and and I'm a yacker, right? As you can tell here. So, and she says, to, she'll say to me sometimes, "Are you still talking?" <laughs> you know, or else if we're in a group, and I love to make people laugh. So I, I, you know, especially people who I don't know, and I say I'm I'm very shy, and I am, for about two minutes, right? And then I warm up the table, right? And I start, and then I get them laughing, and they say to Liz, they say, "Oh, your husband's so funny," and she'll say. Don't encourage him. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't, don't get him don't going. Don't get him going, right? Um, and I have no problems, like, embarrassing her, you know, like being silly. So so I guess the big question is about this refocusing your life thing. The, 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 the thing that I question is you don't have the craziness going on around you anymore. You don't have that buzz no. happening anymore. You have to replace it with something because you're the type of person who's who who has those huge adrenaline rushes in one way or another. So, what what did you replace it with? Well, when it first happened, you know, when I they, I was let go, um, I couldn't listen to radio. It hurt me too much. Yeah. And if I, and it's not because I was angry. It's because that life is over. It's done. Okay, um, so that that took a while, probably longer. As a matter of fact, when it happened, I would look, be staring out the window in my pajamas, hadn't showered in days, looking out the window and saying, yelling at the window, I know everything happens for a reason, but I don't know what the fucking reason is. And one day, doing that, and sometimes I'd be yelling at it, but most times I'd be yelling in my mind, but I would be going to that. And then one day I woke up, looked out the window, started to say the same thing, and I stopped and I went, no, I have to take charge now and figure out what am I doing, okay? I gotta stop this pity party uh-huh. and poor Stevie and figure out, okay, what should I do? And that's when I decided I'm going to be a consultant. I'm going to call it Couch Media. How vain is that? Eh? 
Couch Media. I couldn't come up with a fun name, so I said Couch Media. <laughs> Couch Media. Yeah. Um, and I went and said to Liz, because Lizzie would always say, are you going to stay in those pajamas? Like, I need to wash them. You know? You were smelling at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah I must have been. Yeah. You know? I didn't care. Um, so I said, I've made a decision. I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to call it Couch Media. And she just looked at me and she said, Finally. Thank God. Finally. <laughs> Thank God. You know? <laughs> and I did. Get this guy out of here. And that, that kept me busy, and I was writing blogs and everything. Uh, but after, but the longer I was away, the more distant I was from the business, right. and more importantly, from the people. Yes. And it, eventually it was, Steve, who? Who? What did you do? And that's, that's when I realized, but I, I, I wasn't down by it. I realized that, you know what? You're not part of it anymore. It's like, you know, um, you leave, you leave a job and then you go back to say hi to everybody. And it's like you could tell that you're really inconveniencing them because yeah. they're busy. Yes. And you just want to be there and talk to them. That's what it was like. Now I have some people who, call me on a regular basis and I call them on a regular basis but for the most part nobody knows who I am so is there me is there meaning in, in your life and yeah do you, do you feel alive do you feel vibrant yes you do yeah 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 I, I feel uh, you know I spend time with Elizabeth we do things did you find out more about yourself who you are when that shield of the career sort of went away because we define ourselves. It is because you know what it says. Hi, I'm Steve Couch. I'm with CFRB. Yes, and that's now you're, always, now you're just Steve Couch. Now I'm just Steve Couch. Okay, and for a while that was okay because they say, "Oh yeah, you were at CFRB." Now I say, "Hi, I'm Steve Couch." Oh yeah, hi, how are you? <laughs> yeah, right, you know? right. And I don't say like I don't like like try and go for and say, "Well, you know, I used to be at CFRB." You know, um, I want you to was, know though. I always come out into the hallway. When my guests are coming up for the show, I like doing that because I like seeing them approach my place and see what they look like as they do that. They're always a little bit lost because you know how I always think we should be going the other way in the exactly. hall. Exactly. Well, that's <laughs> yeah, why yeah, I yeah. thought like when you came out, I went, oh, good, he's over there. Because yeah, right, right, otherwise, for... like, and there's no signs that say yeah. numbers here, right? So I'm looking and looking. And then you open the door and I went, oh, thank God, there's so, where so, I am. So I see you coming my way. And first, you lost a ton of weight. Way to go. You look fabulous. I think you're up to around 260 at some point. Yep. Now you're at about 185. Yep. You really look fabulous. So good for you. And I'm thinking, here comes Steve Couch, my boss. Because I'm not sure that I'll ever shake that. You will always be Steve Couch, my boss. It's like when you had a coach in Pee Wee and you meet the guy 25 years later. You go, hey, coach, how you doing? To me, you'll always be my boss. You're going to make me cry. No, it's the truth. I know. Because, you know, there are a lot of people in the media who I'll see or talk to, you know, and they'll say something like, you know, you you changed my life. Yeah. Or, or whatever. Yeah. I, uh, during the Quebec referendum, the second referendum, God knows, 85 or 80 or whatever, um, I was in Montreal and I was going up an escalator at the convention center for, it was a... Uh, Parts of Quebec. Oh, it was a meeting about covering the referendum. And I'm going up, and a re somebody's coming down. He's a reporter. He's got his tag. He 
Okay. And he looks at me and he says, Steve Couch. I said, yeah. And he gives me his name. I'm terrible with names. But I remembered him. He says, wait for me at the top of the stairs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I like runs those moments. Runs down the stairs and he runs up the stairs. I just want to thank you. And then he tells me the story of how um, I was... Oh, I was. I had a lot of speaking engagements at the colleges, so I would go and I'd talk about the radio and what to do and how to do a twenty-five percent club, and and I could always tell who I hit, you know, and resonated with. They'd come to me and they say, "I'm a member of the twenty-five percent club." Oh, no, yeah. So it's yeah. like a touch up. This kid came up to me and he said, "I, I, I need to ask you something. I've been offered a job at the at the." at the Gazette but they want me to be a police reporter a weekend police reporter and I don't want to do that and I said why well because I want to be a political reporter I said then you need to take the police reporter job because you're not going to enter newspapers today to be a political reporter you need to get your foot in the door and the police reporter will, will teach you how to seek out stories and ask questions and become a reporter. And eventually, you will become what you want to be, a political reporter. Because I said, look at me. I was a police reporter. And now I'm a bureau chief in Quebec National Yeah, Assembly. you were hanging around with pimps. Yeah. 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 Well, I still was really at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so to speak. Yeah. So he said... I just want you to know that I am the bureau chief of, um, I don't know if he, I think he was in Ottawa yeah. or Quebec because I was, I was no longer in Quebec then. Anyways, but he got the job that he wanted because he took the job of police reporter and he said, I would never have done it if it hadn't been for you. Right. That's and I right. Went, Holy moly. That's right. And yeah. I, there are so many people that I, that I've worked with that'll tell me that. You know, you helped me. You did this. You you inspired me, or or, or what have you. And and I I don't think of that of like I'm inspiring people. You know, I think of that as like I'm I'm trying to help them be the best they can. Mm -hmm. Because, well, I may not have had a a great home life. I had a great career because I had great editors and everything who took me under their wing and help me and I always thought that part of my job is to help people you know first thing I would do if people got fired in Toronto I would have my secretary call them and make an appointment come Steve Couch wants to see you I didn't have a job for them but I wanted them to know that there's life after being fired and what do you want to do and me how can I help you and and I'd reach out to them. And you know, I just did that. That was just me. When I got fired and people did the same thing to me and they called me and talked to me, we, we'd be crying on the phone like, because ah, I could be very emotional as well. And that led me to believe and I started telling people online and I think I even said it in my book that uh, if somebody loses their job and you know them, you need to call them. Don't send them an email or 
send them an email and then call them. But they need you. They need to hear a reassuring voice. They need to hear that, you know what, you're not a piece of shit. Okay? Because today you get fired out of media not because you did anything wrong. It's just you got a target on your back because you're making too much money. You know, I always... Did you make a lot of money? I didn't realize how much money I made. You were making some good cash? I, until I wasn't making it anymore. The, the reason I... Right. That's exactly okay. what happens. The reason I ask you that is because you went from dirt poor, impoverished, on welfare, to being a fancy executive. Well, I wouldn't say fancy, but I, I was making a lot of money. Yeah. Which is beautiful. It really is beautiful. Yeah, did you? I, I never realized I was making that did, but much no, money. But did you buy yourself stuff? Did you buy the comparable of the Bulova? Uh, got a nice house. Did you buy yourself a nice house? Yeah. And when you but bought... But to, to afford it, though, right? It was this whole new thing, rent to own. First year, you pay the rent, which is the down payment. Right. Because who, who's who got twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 for a down payment? Right. But uh, sent my... Uh, sent, uh, Layla was uh, an exchange student in Paris for over a year. No, but what'd you buy for... for what did you buy for yourself? Trips. Well, you? for myself or, or for my wife with us. I, we we live very well. Yeah, yeah. Thank God I have a good pension. But I'm making probably a third of what I was making. I know. And then you realize how well you were doing. Yeah. Okay, so you're in retirement. The advice from streetdirectory.com is increase your social circle, stay connected to those events and people that you previously enjoyed during your working career. Don't be afraid to have a social life. Join clubs and associations that interest you and get to know new people with similar interests. So you did? No. But I wasn't a member. I, I, I'm not one to join a social do you have, club. Do you have friends? Oh, yes, I have friends. You have a lot of friends? Yeah, uh, and I, they're important to me. Have you always had friends? Yes. Like, well, in high school, I had a few good friends. And the others were bullies. So you got bullied, oh, eh? big time. Did you? Yep. Well, why? What was your weak spot that they went for? Well, you know, I, we didn't have nice clothes. I was goofy, had glasses. Uh, I was a bit of a nerd. I was a student, so I took my studying seriously. You did well. I did well. Um, well, I thought I did well until Liz, who was an honors student in university, and Aced it. looked at my uh, Rosemount High School leaving uh, marks, right? <laughs> and she says, oh, my God, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do, Steve, how do you look back on those bullies today? I've had some who have called me up and apologized. Oh, you've gotten those yeah, calls. Yeah, and I'd say, well, take a number. Um, you forgive again, them? Again, I learned from them. You forgive them? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, yeah, bully. I mean, I'd have, I had a girl chase me home. I came down the stairs and she's underneath the stairs waiting for me. And I said, what are you doing? Yeah. I hate you. Why? Because I hate you. Everybody hates you. I says, well, then you could stay there. Because I, I. What am I going to do? Yeah. You want to come and hit me? You know, really? Yeah. Um, so I was, I was really only beaten up once. And that's because I took a shot at him first. Because I was in a bad mood and he sort of 
was bullying me and pushed me and I just fuck you and oh, good for him. you good right? for you but then he hit me and broke my glasses well sometimes... and then my mother blamed me it was my fault oh. you, what did you do I did nothing no 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 you 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 must have done something and what the one thing that still bothers me to this day and this kid was a bully everybody knew he was a bully but the teacher blamed me well you must have done something to him and I went really now I'm being bullied by a teacher. Yeah. You know? Otherwise, it wasn't... Um, uh, yeah, they would pick on me. Did you ever bully anybody? I don't think so. No. Like, 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 push them around? Uh, any, any form of it. I, I, no, no, I was always helpful. I once did, and I apologized to that person. He didn't remember. And I guess I was happy about that, but I was just so disgusted with myself. Yeah, no. Where that came from, I don't know. Sometimes I guess you do get into a dark. I mean, we all have a dark side. We do. You know, and then sometimes, but I, I don't know. I, I learned from all this, and I tried. I tried to rise above it. You know. That's I, right. That's and I don't, right. Don't ask me how I did this. I mean, I should really be probably one of the homeless people you would be helping. Yeah. I mean, I, if I had gone that route, it would have been totally acceptable. So listen, we're coming close to the end of the show. I haven't bored you yet. Are you kidding, man? I could do this for hours. <laughs> I adore your stories. I have so much respect for what you've done. And uh, it's so fascinating. But I've been lucky, though. Well, call it what you want. I mean, for whatever. Are you a believer in God? Yes. So you believe God put you down on this earth for, to tell stories for for a reason? It's to tell stories. Well, story. yes, I, I I believe in fate. Everything happens for for a, a reason, reason, right? For a reason. I also believe that. Not everybody believes that, but I do. And I I am just one of those people, and I always have been. Um, I like to tell stories too, but I like to listen to stories a lot more. Yeah, but you just don't tell stories. You help people. I remember one day you came to the radio station, and we put you on the air with Ted Wallace and. It was wintertime. Yeah. And you came up with this idea that if you heat potatoes right. and you put them in a sock and then you give them to the homeless, <laughs> yeah. it helps warm them up. Correct. Okay? And I thought, wow, that's unbelievable. I yeah. mean, you were the food guys, crazy, but with your organization, you were helping people. And I made yeah. sure that if you needed to promote something, Right, you would do it, but this potato. Yeah, that's true. You in did. a thing, right? Well, I thought was amazing. I got okay, that. I haven't done that, but what I've done though is is make give you a platform. You did. You to did do that, and I and I you believe, were great that way. Yes, I believe that was an important part of my job. I tell you, I was so lucky that way because here I had started an organization, and we all know that the the most difficult thing to do is to market. Yep. You know, what you've started up. And here I was on CFRB, Marty and Avram, two goofy guys talking about food. We didn't even know about food, you know. And there you were, very generous of spirit, offering us a platform. But you had, but you guys were fun. If you guys weren't funny. Yeah, we were funny. And and, and it wouldn't have worked. No, we were People either loved you yeah. or they hated you. So the, the thing that you did for me too, and I want to take this opportunity to thank you. I came to you once and I said, Steve, you know what? I would love to do um, a show outside of Marty and Avram. 
to fill in for somebody. Because as you can see, the reason I started this podcast is because I find it very difficult to do three-minute interviews. I want to know who you are. And at the end of this interview, I tell you something, I feel a tremendous closeness toward you. I really do. I, I often tell people when I start this interview or before I do, I feel like it's going to be a gift to you. By the time I'm finished, I feel like it's a gift to me. Do you ever do an interview and you do it all and then you go like, what a piece of crap, what am I going to do with this? So I feel like there's aspects of it that are, but generally I've been very satisfied with my podcast so far. But I came to you and I said, Steve, I want to do some shows, maybe I can fill in for somebody. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but you said yes. Yes, and you did. And I did. Yeah. And I sat there in the studio late at night, I think it was a two or three hour slot, and I divided up my two or three hours into four different sections. Um, and I did what talk people do. I just started talking and I opened up the lines. I think one of the uh, discussions that I had with callers was, uh, tell me about a poem that you wrote. And it, you have such an advantage of being a talk show host when you open up the lines. You just have to be quiet and listen. And if you do that well, there's gems and gems was yep. of opportunities, right? Yep. You did on-air stuff. Well, but I never hosted a show. Right. Okay, I would be the... I, I, I would come in for comic relief. Yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah, yeah. Or else I'd, I'd come in and tell a story. Yeah. About, yeah. you know, things. But um, I don't think I could do a talk show host. I don't think I'm smart enough to do it. Well, what do you mean by smart? Oh, you got you, you to know the stuff, right? And, uh, and it's not just one thing. A talk show host for three hours, you got like three, four, five topics. So you're in awe of these guys? Oh, yeah. I am too. Oh, no. <laughs> so big, am I. I am time. too. And I, I, you know, and sometimes I would produce and I'd be freaking out. Yeah. Because, yeah. oh my God, I can't get somebody. I'm the program director. I cannot fail. Because if I can't do this, yeah. right, which is another reason why sometimes bosses shouldn't do it, because. You make a mistake, they're going to look at you and say, oh, yeah, well, next time I make a mistake, he better not take me to task, right? So I'd be the first one to say, guys, I'm just filling in, okay? So, like, uh, we're winging this. Who was one of the most outstanding talk show guys that you ever worked with, an absolute star? John Moore, mm -hmm. Bill Carroll, mm -hmm. Jim Richards, because he's totally insane. He's off funny. the wall, Jim. But I also like taking people. I took Ryan, Burr, uh, Ryan Doyle, Mike Van Dixon, who's now program director, and some others, um, and created a show Saturday night called Generation Next. Yeah, that's right. Right? And everybody thought I was crazy. And these four young people were, were great. And it was a Saturday night. Um, ben Dixon would then go on to become uh, program director in Montreal where I mentored him and now he's program director at the biggest talk station in the country yeah his staff say they see a lot of me and him oh is that right yeah yeah I laugh <laughs> but he I knew from when I hired him to produce the morning show um, he was just was a guy for radio he he loved radio he understood radio and he's done a great job with the, the radio station. And the one thing that I haven't done and I have never done is uh, like to, to, to criticize him for anything that he's done at CFRB. There yeah. are things I disagree with, but you know what? So what? It's, it's not my job to do that. There was um, George, George Bush, 
the son, George W., like that. Number 44, I guess. I think it was 44, 42, yeah. whatever. Um, oh, I could be never, wrong. Yeah, right. Because he was before Obama. Right. And right. Obama was 44, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so um, he never criticized the president, even though he was a different party who won. I guess it would have been Clinton's. He says, it's not my job to criticize. Okay? He's the president of the United States now. I wouldn't have liked another president to come and criticize me. I'm not going to say anything about what he's doing. And I, I believe in that. I have never publicly said anything negative about the radio station, either here in Toronto or in Montreal, right? about what they did or they're doing. Because you know what? Everybody thinks they're a program director. And they could all tell me how I'm a piece of shit and don't know what I'm doing. Everyone can coach the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? Yes, yes. Better than Mike Babcock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How are they doing? Or how did they do? Yeah. You know? So no. That's very true about your job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you don't even have a degree. <laughs> no. No. But the thing, though, is I would return phone calls. I mean, my listeners were important. Yes. I would take their calls. I would go on the air and open the lines and have them call and attack the radio station and say, oh, I don't like this and why. And I would take the calls. I say, and I said, um, there's, no, there's no topic that you can't raise. I will deal with it. And then at the end of the show, I'd give them my direct line. Instead of having them call the switchboard, call me. And people go, are you crazy? I went, listen, you know what? Let them call. They'll, they'll, they, they, people would be calling at 2 in the morning. Really? You know, they complain about the radio station. They, and they'd leave messages, and I'd listen. And I'd go, okay, I'll check it out. And, I'd call, and they'd be amazed that I called them back. So are you a satisfied man? Yes. If I'm satisfied that I had a I'm fortunate I had a great career. I'm fortunate that I have a loving family and I have a good life. Not as rich as I used to be. But you know what? Money's not everything. Right. You know? Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm happy. I've always been happy. I, I, I have to have been happy because otherwise, how did I get here from being on welfare and a father who was an alcoholic and a mother who didn't care? Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, I want to thank you very much for this. I'm deeply honored. Well, I'm I'm honored that you thought that I would be worth however long we've been talking. Oh, I just knew that you would have a plethora of things to say because I know what you've done. And then perusing your book, again, it's a wonderful book calling, called Making It Big in Media, which is available on Amazon. Uh, that's just a wealth of information. I think you said it it was 40 years in the making, and yes. that's very true. Yeah, yeah. And also, if I, you know, final thing is believe in yourself. Believe that you can do it, all right? The only thing stopping you from doing it is believing that you can't. You can do it. You can do anything that you set your mind to. You may not get as high up there as you want, but you'll get there easier than if you doubt yourself. Agreed. And nobody's got the right to tell you to not chase your dream. And, chase and, your dream. And I want to tell you, Steve Coach, on behalf of Marty and myself, uh, thank you for believing in us. Uh, we always felt that. Anytime we would come into you and have meetings or discussions with you, we always felt that you believed in us. We really did. And uh, you can imagine how we were feeling about being on such a large radio station. You know how you always have that feeling? Like, I'm a bit of a schmageggy, you know. I'm from Kitchener, and uh, how important could I possibly be? But then you get on the radio, and you feel like a million bucks. 
But it doesn't matter what radio station you're on. You could be anywhere. You could be anywhere, right? And you guys, I mean, hold on, I'm going to get mad at you guys. Marty would always like, he'd come in and he'd be laughing. And and there was never any yelling in those meetings because we were laughing too much. Well, you were nuts about Marty, weren't you? You really liked him a I lot. I really liked him. I know you did. You were the serious guy. I was a serious guy. Okay. Marty was the funny guy. You <laughs> I, were the glue. I had to be serious. Well, yeah, you had to and, and, and rein him in. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, sometimes too, I'd have, sometimes I'd have to rein the two of you in. Yeah. But but you were funny and it was infectious. And people who would criticize us said, come on, you got to listen to the show. Do you not laugh? Yeah, I laugh, but it's not the show that should be on CFRB. Right. All the more reason why right. it's on CFRB. Right, right. So thank you so much well, thank you. for being in our corner and for taking care of us for all those years. You really did it. something very special for the both of us. And that's why I can do this podcast today. I have the confidence to do it. And for you to be my guest means a lot, Steve. So I thank you so much for coming here today. Can I sign your book? Yes, I would like that very much. Okay. And I want to thank uh, my listeners as well for uh, for listening to this show and other shows. Please continue to do so. Uh, share the links. Uh, and if you like, subscribe as well. That would be very helpful. we got lots of great shows coming up in the future. And uh, I think it's a really important show because I'm, I'm all about positivity. Uh, I'm not into yellow journalism, and I'm not into negativity. I don't care about issues, to be honest. I care about people. So if you feel the same, um, please continue to listen. And feel free to be in touch at avram at hatradio.ca. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Hat Radio. It's the show that schmoozes. Do you like that? The show that schmoozes. That, the show that schmoozes. God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig. Sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room. Share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned. Keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been. What you found out. Spread some light in the darkness. Spread it all about in the hat.